Hello Grumps of the World and welcome to One Foot in the Podcast with your grumpy host Tom. Podcast dedicated to David Renwick's hugely successful sitcom where I dissect, discuss and moan my way through episode by episode, series after series, moan after moan. Today I'll be discussing series 2 episode 4, Who Will Buy? So with this episode then, Who Will Buy? A bit more of a straightforward title compared to previous ones, as if you know the plot to this episode well, it, it seems like Renwick just for once has kept it simple and ensured you're not overthinking what it could mean, or, or did he? Uh, I certainly always try and work out what the hell he means in half of his uh, titles for uh, the series he produces. This episode introduces two exceptional characters um, that, who debutise in the series, two characters that definitely um, help move this show along, bring uh, a different dynamic to Victor and Margaret's life, certainly a different dynamic to the show um, overall, in Patrick and Pippa Trench. The surname Trench I actually had to look up. I, I couldn't recall what their surnames were. They're, it's rarely used, if at all. But yeah, Patrick and Pippa are now on the scene, which I look forward to discussing their opening scene and the uh, funny little mix-up that occurs and how their relationship with Victor Margaret, or more so Victor, gets off to the negative start and it sets the course for their um, entire relationship, I would I would imagine. But yeah, we'll talk more about that later. This episode also sees the return of the fantastic and slightly kooky, yet innocent Nick Sweeney, played by Owen Brenham. Follow him on Twitter, if you will. So as ever, I will read a, a synopsis as provided by IMDb. Victor and Margaret get worried when a couple named Patrick and Pippa seemingly come to stay as they have no idea who they are. Margaret befriends an elderly blind gentleman. We open up with quite a cosy scene in the Melger residence. Victor and Margaret are watching a a crime series and there's a a wooden puppet casually sat between Victor and Margaret. Victor looks like he's had a couple of drinks. He's quite relaxed for once. Probably the most relaxed we've seen him to date. And he's speaking to Margaret about what they're watching. The series they're watching is Poirot, another nod from Renwick for his love of, I assume, love of detective series. Again, he may well have been penning Jonathan Creek at this point. It's still uh, not, uh, 1990, a good seven years before it's aired, but you never know. But he seems to have quite a joy with referencing detective series or fictional characters. So anyway, Victor asks... Who do you reckon did it then? His nephew, Basil. Why? Because when they found the old man's body in the herb garden, that's what he was clutching in his hand, a piece of basil. Ah. <laughs> Lucky he wasn't killed by his uncle Dick. <laughs> so anyway, Victor, you know, sprawled back on the sofa. I, I assume he hasn't really been paying attention because he's, um, he's had a few drinks and he's getting a bit silly uh, in terms of his humour. That's quite an um, amusing little gag there from Victor. Clearly the the whiskey and smarties he's consumed um, puts him in the best of moods, as pointed out by Margaret. Oh, it's the same, isn't it? As soon as you start mixing the whiskey and smarties, <laughs> the lethal combination with you reduces your whole conversation to the level of a lavatory brush. Although she doesn't describe it as a you know great mood, just in being a little bit uh, silly. But it's nice to see this other side of Victor. It looks like it's late into the night. Uh, Margaret's about to go to bed. Uh, Victor appears to have a spot on his face. 
Uh, Margaret just says, well, I'm not surprised at the amount of Smarties you consume. I think that's true. If you eat too much crap food, it will bring you out in acne, no matter what your age. A little life lesson from Renwick, I think. I read, in pre- I read into pretty much every piece of dialogue uh, from Victor and Margaret because the way Renwick is, I think he's quite critical of society and its ways. I do think, though, that Renwick's purposely painted another ridiculous conclusion to a detective series. Like, I think he... I assume he's had a, had a knack for in his spare time at this point. I'm just completely making this up. This is no truth behind this. It's just my theory. Renwick, although I assume he's always liked detective dramas and is inspired by previous series, I do think Renwick is, although he's clearly into his detective uh, novels and dramas series. This thing does feel like Renwick's um, taking the piss a little bit of, of how the old school dramas and detective series were produced. That's just my theory. We're laughing at the expense of well-known series, and he does the same in Jonathan Creek in one of the more recent episodes. I say recent, is about five or six years ago, where he was evidently taking the mick out of Sherlock Holmes. And it feels like he's doing the same in this in this opening scene. And it's still really amusing. And just as we're led down a, a certain path where we're actually seeing Victor and Margaret just for once relaxing, Victor a little bit drunk and happy and, you know, acting silly. But Margaret makes a, an idle comment that it's, you know, it's not often you see Poirot downing um, lager like that, or words to that, that effect. And Victor sort of sits up and the old Victor kicks in straight away. It's not often you see Poirot sweep back a tankard of beer like that. No. You know why? It's bloody Jockey Wilson. We're watching the dance now. How did that happen? I was wondering why they were all wearing their shirts outside their trousers. (laughs) Again, it's always the delivery from Richard Wilson. And somehow they've watched the darts for God knows how long at this point. I don't. I never had a telly. Certainly in the nineties, that would turn itself over. But you guys may, if you're old enough to have had an old portable, um, perhaps that did happen. Perhaps I had a de- half decent telly, but I just find that fantastic. It was. It was needless. It didn't need. Renwick didn't need to include that. I think the scene was perfectly fine as it was until he added this in, and it just improves it straight away. Just excellent. Out, out of nowhere, the out of nowhere comedy that annoys Victor. It just works perfectly. And I'm sure it's just to have a dig at dark players. And he wondered why they're wearing their shirts outside their trousers and it's just getting like, yeah, like I said, a, a little dig in there. It might be obvious to say, but the number of times I keep uh, referencing this, but I'm sure Renwick is using his sitcom writing abilities just to have a go at the things in life that annoy him. And he's channeling it through Victor Meldrew really well. Margaret's a little unhappy with this wooden puppet uh, that's sat on the sofa. It's creeping her out, and she uh, is a bit uh, dismayed to find that the its back is burst open. So Victor walks out of there, flinging the puppet over its back, which all sorts of bits coming out of it, which ends the scene there. We're now at the following morning. Victor's got a bit of a hangover, and he's trying to search uh, for Margaret at, at home. Margaret casually walks through the back door, and she's still got hay her dressing gown on. Victor wants to know where she's been and she says she's been down the town hall quite casually, which brings her uh, some audience laughter. And she's not joking. There was an unexploded bomb found from World War II, she says, through one of the neighbours' gardens. So the whole street had to be evacuated, which means that Victor the whole time was in bed, sleeping on his hangover. 
just a story of Victor's life, really, almost being forgotten about, uh, disrespected. I, it's just a bit bizarre. I think perhaps Margaret didn't take it too seriously, and you know, I done it. A bomb that's not exploded for however many years at that point, fifty odd years. It's not going to do any harm, you know. Suddenly in nineteen ninety, I don't know. One could read into it. It's funny though that Victor's look on his face when he discovers that. Not actually sure why Margaret did go to the town centre. Maybe she was just being sarcastic, but it isn't actually explained. But the only reason I can think of is because they had to evacuate. She thought, oh, well, I may as well pop down to the town centre, uh, sorry, the town hall. By town hall, I actually mean community centre. Contrary to what I said about Margaret not supposedly caring about Victor getting up, she does reference that she asked her, asked him three times, but Victor respond, had responded to, say, call for the A-team and stuck a pillow over his head and went back to sleep. So there's still no urgency, but there we go. Victor answers the doorbell and it's a toy salesman played by William, and I'm pronouncing this surname, I've practiced and practiced, I don't think I've got it right, William van der Puy, van der Puy, Christ, that's embarrassing. He also appears in a Jonathan Creek episode, Remick showing loyalty uh, later on in his career. Good morning, sir. Another lovely one, isn't it? Makes you wonder what's happening to the old climate these days, eh? What are you, a daughter-to-a metrologist? <laughs> I've got a splitting headache. Now, what with Christmas just around the corner, I've got something here, and I know you'll agree will make the ideal gift for your grandchildren. How do you know I've got grandchildren? I might be completely sterile. <laughs> He's quite um, stereotypical salesman, very high on energy, much to Victor's annoyance. The toy salesman references that is, as it's nearly Christmas, I thought I might want to buy some something for the, the grandchildren. Straight away, uh, assuming that Victor's got grandkids. Now, this is a bit of a double whammy for Victor because we know that they haven't got a child because they passed away, which we learned um, previously. Therefore, certainly haven't got a grandchild, so that's going to hurt anyone when that assumption's made. But also, this guy who's some jumped-up bloke in his early 30s is basically saying you're old, so you, this, surely you will uh, have grandkids. <laughs> Bendy dinosaurs. Now the kids go ape over them. I got two myself, and they never put them down. This is your uh, Brontosaurus, and this is your uh, Triceratops. I think that one's called. Twenty-five pound each. Now we do do a much bigger size at fifty, and as I say, totally indestructible. You can bend that neck every which way. You won't snap. Go on, you try that. I won't if you don't mind. Once I start snapping necks, I find it very hard to stop. <laughs> He's selling. Bendy Dinosaurs. Now, kudos to Renwick. This is 1990. Jurassic Park, the film, hasn't yet been out for a couple of years, although the novel was out a month after this episode released. So he seems to have jumped on the uh, dinosaur toy merchandise uh, quite quickly at this point. And this guy's selling Bendy Dinosaurs for 25 quid. When I, when I first watched this many, many years ago as a, a young lad, well, that is expensive, and I still think 25 quid for a bendy dinosaur is steep. And I uh, rather sadly went to the Bank of England website on the inflation calculator. 25 quid in 1919, today's money, is nearly £60. And that was for one of the cheap dinosaurs. And he says he does a, a, a bigger uh, size for 50 quid, which is £115 in today's money. It's absolutely extortionate. Oh, just, yeah, I don't know if anyone... Again, he's, he's probably... Really having a sly dig at door-to-door salesmen for whacking on huge sums of money onto 
crap products just so they can make a um, a quick quid now and again. He's really having a dig at the door-to-door salesman there at least for the amount of money they're making. But yeah, I think, Christ, that is a lot of money. 25 quid or double that for a slightly bigger one. He says, once I uh, snap next, I find it very hard to stop. And he closes the door on this guy. And he just, through through Victor Margaret's door, it's a window. You can see him just stays there for about, God, quite a long time. He didn't just, I think he's there and stood there in disbelief. What I noticed was, and it's something that always um, fascinates me, is the scenery. So I don't think last episode I was curious to know if a certain camera angle from outside of Victor's house staring into the hallway was a set or actually on the street where they film it. And again, it's certainly the case where this is definitely a set because behind the the salesman you've got a row of terraced houses opposite and it clearly looks like a huge blown up picture. It's not bad graphics, really, for 1990, but you can certainly tell when you're watching this back. These bendy dinosaurs also, he had Brachiosaurus, the long-necked one anyway, I can't think of the name. And he had the he had the Triceratops dinosaur, and I can't think how that's in any way, shape or form, bendy. But there we go, let's not quibble. We uh, let out a little small cheer when he shoves the door in his face and gets on with his day. Will this be the last time we hear of... This toy salesman, directly or indirectly, we'll soon find out. Prior to Victor answering the door, Margaret, who out of nowhere thought she spotted a a beetle or some bugs on the floor. At the point where Victor was answering the door, she used an empty Smarties tube and collected them and put them in the tube. And obviously, Victor's walked back and he's seen his favourite sweet and he casually swallowed some possibly live bugs. Uh, Dead or alive, that's... Absolute rank. He doesn't seem to bat an eyelid. Margaret, of course, um, realises her error and probably wise to say she doesn't mention anything. Anyway, um, on to an outdoor scene. Victor has, um, well, he's discarding some junk mail in the bin where he is greeted by Mr. Swaney, which is seemingly making good use of the uh, fence door he's built, which... uh, Make sure there's access between both gardens. Mr. Meldrew, how are you today? Fine, thank you. Jolly and polite as ever, just casually steps into his garden like it's a communal area. Victor never quite has the courage to speak ill of Mr. Swaney, or he rarely gets funny with him because Mr. Swaney is simply so polite. So much so that he's left some, well, his mother's apparently made some grape and peach jam. He says he left it by the back uh, the back door, so he hasn't actually let himself into the garden without permission. But it is for a good for a good reason, I guess. I put some jam on your doorstep. Hope that was all right. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> grape and peach, courtesy of mother. He says thank you very much indeed. Something that always makes me laugh is when he gifts something to Victor and Margaret, and he says it's from his mother. He'll look up to the bedroom window and thank her on their behalf. <laughs> and Victor's just looking so perplexed, looking at a window of clearly nobody um, looking through. Um, how his elderly mother's supposed to hear, I don't know, assuming she's got hearing problems. But, uh, yeah, meanwhile... So Victor asks how his mother is, and uh, Mr Spain says, oh, she's not too bad, um, although she's come up with uh, more of her ideas and that she wants to be buried in the back garden. And as he says this, he's... He's got a uh, spade in his hand, which uh, 
gives that there's a classic misunderstanding there, visually especially. Quite often it's, well, almost all the time people around Victor um, had this misinterpretation of what he's doing, what he's saying. But more often than not, it's also Mr. Sweeney uh, who might come across as a bit mad, but he's not really. He's not obviously going to bury his, his mother like he, he says. He's just he's just saying he's just um, out in the garden res resetting the dahlias, whatever that means. But uh, yeah, it's I think the fact that Victor thought he was being serious added to the comedy because he obviously thinks he's probably a bit of a a bit of a, a Norman Bates um, with the whole you know, mother being kept indoors uh, vibe. Anyway, Mr. Sweeney is there to ask Victor if he would take part in a uh, benefit concert that's been organised at Kingsway Hall. See, I'm glad I've seen you. The thing is. We're putting on a bit of a benefit concert at the Kingsway Hall, uh, Race Funds for the Elderly, and uh, Mrs Meldrew was telling me that you've uh, just started getting back into the old ventriloquism act. Uh, well, yes, I used to do it years and years ago, but it wouldn't be up to performing standards. Not now. Uh, to raise funds for the elderly. It's always about the elderly for Mr Sweeney. Um, that's always been the case since we met him. He's always doing charitable work for them. Um, I guess he's... His heart's in it if he's looking after his elderly mother. Victor appears to begrudgingly accept the offer. He's a little little hesitant, but since he's got his wooden puppet out, I guess he's all for it. Margaret's seen pulling up outside um, some residential houses. Uh, we can see a parked van uh, there. It's like a locksmith's van. Uh, Margaret is has some flowers in her hand, and an elderly gentleman uh, opens the door. The It looks like a... A locksmith has walked past Margaret out of this gentleman's house and we come to learn that his name's Albert. This is played by Jimmy Jewell. And Margaret has uh, quickly realised she's got the wrong house because she's supposed to be at uh, 62A and it's 62. But the gentleman, uh, bless him, thinks it's his niece who sent these flowers because it's his 70th birthday. So Margaret hasn't got the heart to say they're, they're not for you. Uh, you the flower basket, I've got a delivery. Oh, I beg your pardon. I thought you were the security man come back. No, no. Which is really nice, um, quite heartwarming. He invites her in for like a cup of tea and it appears to be a power cut. There's, it's completely dark. Although it's not assumed as a power cut at this point. Quite a funny moment uh, derives from it where Albert says, oh, hang on a minute, I'll switch on the light for you. He switches on the light, nothing happens, and he sort of says, there, that's better. And it's obviously not the case because it's still pitch black. Uh, Margaret tries to um, find the fuse box to switch the lighting back on, and she's stumbling around in the dark, um, making quite a, a noise. But she's just too polite to lead this guy, this man, to it. But she's doing the right thing, I think. I think we'd, I think most of us would probably just let the, the old boy have the flowers, depending on you know your situation. I, I assume Margaret would have to um, pay for that out of her own pocket. When the fuse is fixed by Margaret, we hear the end of an episode of The Archers, followed by the outgoing theme tune. I don't know why it's so amusing. And there's there's a few, I can probably think of one of the comedy, but when The Archers out, intro or outro music is played, it's amusing. It's, play, it's played in Porridge in an episode where Grouty has got his headphones on and Fletcher walks in. Uh, and he won't let Fletcher talk to him until he's finished whatever he's listened to. You think it's something serious, like a radio transmission. Grouty takes off his headphones, uh, 
pulls the auxiliary cable out and it's the theme tune to the archers and it's just it's always it tends to make an appearance the that theme tune anyway scene cuts to victor walking along his street and a car pulls up alongside him hello hi there how are you doing oh, good gracious this is a surprise <laughs> it's a uh... Patrick, Patrick and Pippa. <laughs> Who should it be? None other than Angus Deaton and Janine Davitsky, Patrick and Pippa, who make their debut. Uh, and they seem to know who Victor is, and they're quite uh, bubbly and um, full of full of life and quite a well-spoken middle-class couple. Uh, Victor is leaning sort of over, looking into the car, not quite knowing who they are, being relatively polite about it. Now, they seem quite sure of who Victor is, uh, but they remind him who their names are, and they say it in a quite a kooky way. But Victor hasn't got the courage um, to say, well, how do I know you? Because he's quite he's quite forthright with how he delivers his um, tone of language, or his speech even. So it does surprise me, he wouldn't just say, sorry, have we met? Where did we meet? Um, but he's very much polite Victor in this case, and goes along with it. We're back at Albert's, and Margaret is trying to position the flowers, so she's putting the vase. The lights are back on, and we can see uh, Albert's um, flat. Very much of its time. I mean, it's, it's certainly a dated look. There is there's something you can do for me. Yes. Read a letter for me, from my son, Mike. Lives in Australia. Don't you arrive this morning? This This episode, I think, is all about pulling the heart straight, uh, heartstrings because whilst um, he's got Margaret with him, uh, he politely asks if he could read a card that he's he believes he's received all the way from Australia from his son. And Margaret, of course, obliges. It, it's ages since he wrote. I expect it's, it's full of news. Oh, I expect it is. Oh, I know. His writing is it's terrible, isn't it? But... Well, do the best you can, eh? Yes. Dear Dad, just a few lines to let you know that we all miss you and that we're all thinking of you, even though we're so far apart. The weather here, the weather here is wonderful and we just wish that you were here to share it with us. And we're absolutely heartbreaking to see that it's not a card, it's just some pamphlet through the post. And I just think it's so honourable that Margaret goes along with it and just ad-libs on the spot um, quite cleverly really reads out a pretend card essentially just to make sure this gentleman's feelings aren't hurt and make it feel make him feel like he's still loved and still you know being kept in touch with his own family i mean for all we know this gentleman will receive his card soon but i think we're we've been painted the picture here that his family pretty crap it could be keeping in touch you know they they, they weren't fl- the flowers for him the flowers weren't for him. Uh, the card clearly isn't for him. But he's obviously keeping the faith, as it were. 
so Albert does confirm his uh, be from his, his son and two grandchildren. And he does reference, actually, that it's been ages since they wrote. So, you know, this is some a rare bit of positivity in his life, for all we know. And yes, yeah, so Margaret proceeds to read out the letter. Once that scene ends, we are now in Victor's house, Victor Margaret's house, with Patrick and Pippa uh, sat on the sofa, just uh, they're watching something. I don't quite know what. Back in the Mildrew residence, we have Patrick and Pippa now sat on the sofa uh, with Victor in his armchair. Uh, they're just watching the end of a film. Uh, Victor is showing the Poirot uh, film uh, episode that they've been watching in the first scene. And as that finishes, Pippa uh, speculates how or who the killer was, which more or less mouths word for word what Margaret said about the killer holding uh, the basil. Oh, I can't remember what I even said now. To, but um has the same theory, and Patrick tears it apart saying, you know, what if the person who got shot was holding some parsley? They could have um, accused him of a completely wrong person. So um, it was more tearing apart uh, of these detective dramas uh, indirectly from Renwick. Um, Margaret uh, arrives. Uh, kind of, they all kind of jump a little bit because it's quite a loud slam of the door. So I think they're each desperate for an intervention of sorts because they're all bored. I think you got Victor, who we will learn in a moment, has no idea who Patrick and Pippa are, and he's invited them into his house. And they are probably thinking there's not a lot going on here. Victor introduces Patrick and Pippa to Margaret and she's um, putting an ultra-polite face on. Uh, Victor also very much um, putting on his... putting on a an angelic act. Oh, look who's there. Yeah, Patrick and Pippa. Apparently, according to Patrick, it's taken them 12 hours to drive from Bath, which is my, uh, my neck of the woods. 12 hours due to the fact the M4 was choked solid. 12 hours, that is insane. Should note that this is the second scene in a row where Margaret's had to put on an act like she did ever so well with the uh, old gentleman. Um, you know, reading a pretend card and making out that the flowers are for him. And now here she is with two strangers. She clearly does not have the foggiest clue who they are. I think as the viewer, if you're watching this for the, watching this for the first time, you, you've got a, an idea that she doesn't know who they are. In comes the part that makes up every good situation comedy. Margaret finds a reason to leave the room to speak to Victor. They're in the kitchen and she's absolutely and she's anticipating who these people are. She's hoping Victor can uh, reveal. Well, the what? But who the hell are they? <laughs> I haven't the faintest idea. You must have some idea. You let them in, didn't you? I've never clapped eyes on them. <laughs> They suddenly turned up on the doorstep with three suitcases. <laughs> I listened to them yapping on for two hours about cones and contraflows. Then I lost the will to live and put on a video. <laughs> I thought you'd know who they were when you got back. He hasn't the faintest idea either, which is confirmed at this point. We, we, we speculated earlier because when they pulled up in the car on the curbside, he just didn't seem to be fully confident on who, who they were. And we see him watching a whole episode of Poirot. So you think, well, maybe he does know who they are. But no, he has no idea. And Victor said, you know, they just turn up on the doorstep with three suitcases. Which, to be fair, if 
no matter what, okay, and it's any sitcom, you're going to say, you're going to ask that person, so I don't, I don't know you. And there are examples in life where someone's rang my, for example, my phone, home telephone, mobile, I wouldn't recognise the number, and that person would just say, all right, Tom, how's it going? And I, I, to be honest with you, I haven't got the balls to say, sorry, who's this? Whether it's a text or a phone call. Um, so I, I can empathise here, but if it's in person, again, I, I might have walked through a supermarket and someone's nodded at me, as I say, all right, mate. Now, I know the general public do do that, especially the British general public, but there has been one or two occasions where I've, I've seen someone, I thought, I do recognise you, but you, I must have worked for you, worked you one occasion 10 years ago, but that person seems to recollect me better. And this is this is what has happened, clearly, with Victor and Margaret. Victor commonly says, you know, he did, he, the reason he put on the episode of Poirot because there was a good couple of hours of nonsense conversation about well by the sounds of it Patrick describing their journey from Bath to where they where they live now so he put on the episode of Poirot and then he sneaked out just to find um or go through all the address books they got and they he just had no idea um who they were well Victor's had enough and he said you know I am actually going to just come out of it and ask them and Margaret holds him back you know he she she doesn't want to be exposed of relief for Victor and Margaret as they go back into the living room Patrick and Pippa say you know we're quite tired now we're gonna we're gonna head on um, and that's seemingly uh, evidently a relief for Margaret at least she's uh, got a smile on her face I uh, wanted want to say thank god we got away with that although we're led to believe that's what they think they think they're going no not at all Victor politely says look you can have our our bed and we'll um, make our make a bed up on the sofa or make a sofa out of the bed even and Margaret is also going along with this, which is leading to some um, confusion for Patrick and Pippa. When Victor says you can have our bed and he finishes his little uh, invitation for them to stay the night, Patrick says, your bed? And Victor gets a little bit snippy. Yes, yes, our bed. It's a perfectly good bed. It's been a bit of Basil Fawlty behind his tone. It made me chuckle. Talking of Basil Fawlty, does remind this in this scene now, so... Patrick and Pippa are obviously, they're probably going to be freaked out. They're almost being forced to say. Victor does a Manuel from Faulty Towers and grabs both the cases and he's wrestling them off Patrick, politely just trying to uh, show from up the stairs. During the commotion, uh, we see Margaret in the kitchen, look at, visually having the penny well and truly dropped. Now, what makes the penny drop, I believe, is because, it's because Patrick says, you know, we better get home now. And it's seconds later, the camera pans to, uh, switches to Margaret, and she has the look of absolute horror on her face, and she re- now realises who they are. She still wants to save face at this point, and she uh, tactfully convinces Victor just to let them go. Now, Patrick and Pippa leave, and Margaret lets out a, a, an oh God moan. <laughs> For me, it's just as funny as any Victor catchphrase. Margaret's catchphrases seem to go very much unnoticed, but I always found them just as funny. Uh, there's a lot of a uh, lot of heart and soul goes into her sighing and uh, cursing of Victor. And yeah, I don't think Annette Crosby gets the credit she deserves for that. Margaret proceeds to reveal to Victor that, they, that we have seen them before. She lines up the perfect execution of where they came from. What? What is it? We have seen them before. I've remembered now. I've remembered where they come from. Where? 
next door. I remembered now. I remembered where they come from. Where? Next door. <laughs> I mean, the last place you think, if you watch, when you watch this for the first time, the audience viewer just thinking, who the hell are these? Is it distant family? Is it friends they met on holiday? They're literally their new neighbours. But it is all in the acting and the directing because the line is simple. Where they where they from? Where they're neck from next door? But Annette Crosby just has pauses a little bit, a bit of an X factor pause, and reveals in a horrified manner, although slightly calm with it, next door. <laughs> Victor, Victor's face cracks me up every time. So quite interesting to know that Margaret says when they first moved in to the house. The Patrick people were, were just leaving, saying they're going on a month's holiday to the West Country. Um, and of course, they didn't really clock them. So I, don't, I guess if they if they literally were leaving the day they arrived, I, I think you would remember. I think when you move into a house, what, um, one of the first things you're going to learn of who who your neighbours are, you know, you're going to go, who's to the left of me, who's to the right, if you're, if you're mid-terrace. Um, and I think, although they might not remember their names, I think you'd r remember their faces. I mean, they've gone, they've been gone for a month. Fair enough. I think it's up for debate on that one, but it does make for good comedy. Next scene, Victor is packing his ventriloquism dummy into his suitcase, and he pops to the mirror just to check his uh, how his acne is treating him. And Margaret uh, comes in through the back door, and uh, it's it's become knowledge now that she's cleared up the confusion with. Patrick and Pippa, and apparently they found the funny side of it. But from here on out, Patrick and Pippa, especially Patrick, is going to find Victor weird and strange and um, a bit unusual, thanks to this first impression. I mean, their first first impression is them just moving into their house, um, and apparently, you know, just before they left for the month's holiday. But they might have had a conversation about why they had to move house because if they learnt that the house had been um, burnt down or or knocked down even and was was caught on fire and um caught up in a tornado they might have already thought at that point they're just bad luck but they seem quite um liberal liberal towards them um but not, being sort of made to watch Poirier for a couple of hours and acting strange and inviting them to stay the night you know already I think Patrick is thinking this guy's weird this guy's a bit strange the fact that Margaret said, you know, I have explained you know, the the mix-up makes you think, why didn't you do that for the, the for the next four and a half series? Because there's so many occasions where Angus Deaton's character sees things that do seem strange, a bit odd. But if only someone could explain to him, no, this is the reason, this is the reason. I mean, it wouldn't be the same as a comedy, I know. But for all those times that Victor and Margaret can see that they unintentionally come across as a bit bizarre with their activities, in real life you go, oh, just so you know, the reason for that dead animal on my doorstep was for this reason, or the reason why um, we've got 100 um, Father Christmas names in our house, which is an upcoming Christmas special, is because there's a mix-up with the order. All these little things that you could just explain away, 
Well, I guess Patrick and Pippa, Patrick especially, choose not to know, and they just carry on with their day-to-day lives, acknowledging they've got this uh, apparent strange, uh, grumpy uh, neighbour who gets in, into all sorts of uh, mix-ups. Or are they mix-ups to them? Do they think he's just a genuine psycho? I think Patrick certainly does. Um, but yeah, frustrating. Always, I said that from one of the first podcasts, I think one of my first podcasts is that it's frustrating that we see everything from Victor's point of view and everything makes sense. There's a reason for these uh, strange occurrences that um, attract Victor, but nothing gets explained to the outside world. But like I said, it makes for a superb comedy. Margaret's on her way out and Victor's about to call for a taxi to be taken down to the community hall, but apparently Pippa's been quite charitable and offered to take Victor down. Victor does, however, want to call um, the video repairman uh, to give him what for. He says, he, he bet, I bet I'll get through to that bimbo on the showroom desk. It's a little bit harsh, coarse language that possibly you could get away with in 1990. Yeah, anyway, not here to talk about political correctness or correct terminologies. We can compare to them to what we use now, but um, I don't. people don't really use the term bimbo now. But uh, yeah, reading far too into that little bit of dialogue as he's... Uh, on the telephone waiting to be put through, he's he picks up his puppet. Is it a puppet? It's a doll, it's a puppet, it's a ventriloquism dummy, that's it. A dummy. Which is ironic. Me being the dummy there, not knowing what the name was, and he's inspecting the back, and he's got all the, the fluff and bits coming out. Now this is interesting. Pippa just happily lets herself in through the back. I don't know what it was for these na- <laughs> these neighbours. Pippa lets herself in through the Mildrew's back door, casually. I know she's doing him a favour, but jeez. It's not Mr. Swainy, it's Pippa, it seems. She lets himself through the back door into another comedy mix-up. It's probably going to be the first time, proper time, that Pippa will experience strange behaviour from Victor. Unintentionally, of course, because he's picked up the dummy in his hand. He is on the telephone to this video repair people that he wants to bollock down the phone at. The video thing has been mentioned throughout the episode, actually. There is an episode coming up, I think next series, where... There's a mix-up with video repairs and coming round and a beggar. And he lets the beggar in and they end up stealing the video. But it's been mentioned a couple of times and it's all for this joke. Because Pippa is staring at Victor from the kitchen whilst he is out of shot. The telephone receives out of shot. He's appearing to look at the dummy and he looks like he's giving it a bollocking. And she thinks... Wow, that's 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 odd, and it's a little bit uh, freaked out by that, especially the behaviour she can see. Clearly, it's on the telephone. Just step around the corner, just a few more degrees. Although that might be taking the the piss even more, considering she just let herself into the kitchen. So I guess it works. We're at the community hall now. Uh, there's a couple of yeah youngsters on stage doing their rock and roll, jazzy dance act. Uh, and it cuts to Mr. Swaney. He's clearly uh, directing everything. He's on his huge walkie-talkie, um, running through the playlist with probably the stage manager or whoever it may be. And I feel quite sorry for, for Victor in this scene because there's all these younger people. And they're quite, they seem quite talented. He, he asks Mr. Swain if he could be, his appearance could be changed to a different point in the night because he doesn't really want to follow a certain act, which I totally get. If you've got this rock and roll act on stage and then you've got a ventriloquist dummy, it might be a bit of a potential come down. We do learn the, the name of the dummy, and his name is Cuthbert, and the actor is Victor Meldrew and Cuthbert. Saying that with a lisp is interesting. 
It's a victim manager who wants to go on after a different act, specifically doesn't want to follow uh, Orphanage Explosion. Be interesting to know what kind of act that is. But yeah, he's getting a little bit nervous, getting a bit of stage fright. Victor says he's you know he is feeling a bit out of place and he's getting cold feet, I think, at this point. And ultimately, he just wants to forget the whole thing and, and leave. Scene cuts to Victor and Margaret's very old Ford Fiesta. God, that looks old even for 1990. But she's pulled up outside of Albert's house. And she's carrying a, a smaller bouquet of flowers this time. And as she walks down the, the steps, we see that the um, Albert's door is already ajar. Is anybody in? Hello? It's Mrs. Meldrew from the florists. I thought you might like these freesias. We had them left over from a big display. She nervously asks if anybody's in, uh, gives the door a knock. And yeah, she's just confirming she's just delivering some leftover freesias that she feels he might like. Such a kind-hearted lady is Margaret. Scene switches back now to Victor's ventriloquist act. We don't actually get to see it. We just see the reaction of the other um, acts uh, off stage, and they're all teenagers, early twenties, plus Mr. Swaney, and they're they're loving it. Plus the actual audience um, are laughing. So I'm actually pleased it's gone well for him. It's just be Victor's luck for it to go wrong, but he's he's professional. He's making them laugh. He's keeping it together. He's performing on stage. Um, he didn't back out. And he's made a success of it. It's one of the rare occasions that Victor is managing to do something without any calamity falling around him. Amongst them, they're all, they're all uh, giggling at Victor's act. Um, it looks like a, a runner has come through the uh, acts, through the crowd of acts that are watching Victor to get Mr. Sweeney's attention. And he is pulled aside. And he's taken down to a uh, the telephone on the wall. And it's a sergeant that's um, making a phone call. Sorry, I've um, I've just had a piece of terrible news. Um, one of the old people we go and visit, uh, old blind chap, he's uh, he's been murdered. Oh my goodness! Whenever was this? This afternoon. He was found. It, it could have been any time. Old flat had been ransacked. Poor bloke. God, they can't be right in the head. Just found him there on the floor, strangled, lying there with a domino clutched in his hand. A domino? Yeah, he could play dominoes. He had a special set with race spots. A domino. They didn't say which number. Yeah, he did, as a matter of fact. He said it was a, um, a double one. Don't, don't suppose it means anything. Anyway, if you'll excuse me, I'll... Slightly snips at Pippa because she asks, you know, where where's Victor? Is he ready? And he just says, you know, he's on the stage. You'll be ready in a minute. The sudden change of mood in this comedy is amazing because I think that that is the marker of a, of a superb comedy uh, for me. Anyway, it happens in Fools and Horses. It happens in One Foot in the Grave. Um, it doesn't mean like your faulty towers, your dad's armies, um, porridge, where they don't really have any scenes like that. Where you know tragic scenes because they are classics, but for me, what's um makes my two favorite comedies, One Foot in the Grave and Fools and Horses, set apart from the rest is you can have these tragic moments mixed in with the amazingly hilarious moments. That's pretty dark to use the you know the phrase, you know, the, the old an old blind chap has been murdered. For some reason, Pippa asks um, if they mentioned what number Domino it was, and 
Mr. Sweeney says it was a double one. Pippa's acknowledging that for a moment, and Mr. Sweeney walks off. And she's pondering to herself, double one, two spots, you know, what could that mean? Where's the link? And Victor walks behind her, holding um, his dummy, Cuthbert. He just looks kind of sinister. He looks like a um, theatrical vampire, if you like, uh, with his black top hat and black tuxedo outfit, matching what his dummy's wearing. And Pippa's got this look on her face. She looks like a rabbit in headlights because she's noticed on Victor's face two spots, of course, which from the first scene is established. He does get spots when he eats too much crap, basically. would say it's a bit irrational for her to come up with that theory and a little bit of over the top for her to look at him like he's some cold-blooded murderer. But she has just learnt that an elderly person, an elderly blind person has just been uh, murdered. So she, she seems happy to see him through to his door. Um, she's not like carrying anything for him, so I can't think why she comes in with him if she's that afraid of him. Tell her like she does actually carry something in, uh, with him. She does carry one of his bags, but something that Victor probably could have carried him himself. Before she goes, um, she does decline a cup of tea, but Victor hands Cuthbert the dummy to Pippa and says, "Would you mind just putting it in the, in the downstairs toilet?" Now at this stage, she's already encountered a couple of weird things from Victor keep them in you know inside for a couple of hours to watch a film and i say a film an episode of poirot um wanting them to stay the night when they live next door thinking that he might be the the murderer of a blind um elderly blind man and now has been asked to put this ventriloquism dummy in the downstairs toilet and it doesn't help that victor says um could you be quick please because i think he's bursting which is a, a lovely bit of misunderstanding because he is bursting we know that Half his back is bursting. She's obviously obliges. And Margaret comes down the stairs and sees Pippa helping Cuthbert go to the toilet, quite literally. And she wash, uh, flushes the toilet. And the, the whole works, really. And just for once, through no fault of Pippa's, she looks um, like she's been acting strange from Margaret's point of view. Because we say throughout the series, it's always everyone else's perspective of Victor's strange, but the, there's just sometimes it happens to other other characters. Renwick is just absolutely genius for coming up with these ridiculous ideas that make sense in an irrational uh, manner. <laughs> I think I think for Pippa, the way she's holding the dummy, she's sort of clutching him from behind, like almost looking like she's going to the toilet herself if she was a man standing up. So it's positioned quite well. Margaret's come down the stairs um, and she is looking utterly depressed. She's had a, a crap day for obvious reasons. She's about to reveal to Victor, you know, the what she's just walked into. That must be quite um, traumatic, to say the least. Uh, you know, she's built, she's building up a little friendship. She's befriending this old boy and she's had to deal with what she's dealt with. Victor, Margaret and Mr. Swain are in the kitchen contemplating recent events. <laughs> I just wanted to thank you for your contribution to the show, Mr. Mulder, and uh, at least we can use some of the money to give old Albert a proper funeral. Hmm. For what? A few pounds left over from his pension. That's what his life was worth in the end. Well, I mean, the, the irony of it is he had just over a hundred or so in the post office. He was just about to use it to have all new locks fitted, getting everything properly secured. Now, if he'd done that on Friday morning as planned, he might be alive today. That's right. He said about that. Why on earth didn't they come? Uh, apparently, he just cancelled it at the last minute. He said he needed the money for something else. Mr. Swaney's thanking Victor for his contribution to the show. It's fair to say it went down very well. The nice thing is that they, they, they can use the money raised to give Albert a proper send-off. 
and we we learned that um, he didn't have a lot of money on him this um, old chap um, just you know 100 quid or so and he was going to use the irony of the whole sorry affair was he was going to use the money to pay for new locks on his door just to get some proper security and there's a bit of a mystery on why he didn't do it like he was supposed to book in this this locksmith who we'd seen in an earlier scene doing a quote for him and measuring up and he, he for some reason he's turned down this locksmith in favor of something else so yeah it appears um a bit of a confusing one because margaret says you know he mentioned he needed the locksmith why 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 didn't they uh you know arrive and mr swaney says well he said he needed the money for something else and what would make an old man like that suddenly part with all the money he's got in the world? And now the camera um, is outside Albert's house. There's a Royal Mail van that's parked outside and the postman's just leaving. And the camera very slowly pans uh, in from like a, almost a bird's eye view. And we see a big package outside Albert's door. And this, we're thinking, what the hell could this be? It zooms all the way up to the close shot of the um, address of the uh, resident, address of the receiver. And on the front is the company name of who sent it, Bendy Dinosaurs. And the most tragic thing, there's just there's two sad things about this. One, he was putting his own safety at risk for the love of his grandchildren, which you can understand why he wanted to do that, but it's led to him ultimately being killed. But I don't... Just to be a little bit morbid for a moment, I don't think um, a well-planned robbers who have the intention to kill are going to let a silly little thing like locks get in the way, especially of just a, an average house. It's not like you're um, trying to break into a, a, a safe at a bank... And this is just an elderly chap's front door with, even if it's a new lock, I think they'd have let themselves in anyway, but he still spent his last few pennies on these Bentley dinosaurs, these overpriced crappy things from this probably pushy salesman, which is quite um, a clever link to Rich, uh, Richard Victor's experience um, earlier in the episode. And he's obviously pushed his way into making this sale because he was quite a pushy salesman. He was a little bit forthcoming. Uh, it's quite sad to envisage how he would have been with Albert. Would have totally exploited him and it literally took him for every penny he had. I'm hoping that you know that parcel will find its way to his grandchildren. At least there's a lasting memory of him. But um, yeah. Just wondering if there's a an intentional link here with the actual the fact that it says dinosaurs, something old, and an old person dying. I don't know, quite far fetched probably. And that is the end of the episode. That that was a very good episode, very heartfelt. Um, brought out Renwick's amazing writing ability, comedy mixed with tragedy, showing it gave us a little bit more of an insight into Victor's background and he is quite a creative individual as victor and we've seen it with margaret with her amateur acting victor clearly can perform on stage um later on in the series we'll also see victor um used to do a bit of magic um and also the fact that we meet patrick and pippa will set us up now for the rest of the series there's going to be a, an interesting dynamic between victor and patrick that becomes a bit they become a bit rivals to one another they don't really hold back as the series goes on and how much they dislike each other. I think my favourite 
moment of the episode is Victor and Margaret realising, well, no, Margaret realising who Patrick and Pippa are and the purpose of her visit and how she delivers that line to Victor, you know, the purpose of their visit and where they've seen them from before and where they're from. I think that's great. Yeah, I think, to be fair, that might be my, possibly my favourite episode so far. We've got three more episodes, technically, in this series. That includes a Christmas special. Uh, next episode will be Love and Death, uh, which sees Victor and Margaret go on a little holiday break. But I think we could move on to the Meldrew Moan Corner. I'm running out of things to moan about, actually, and that's a positive thing. But I'm not gonna, yeah, I'm not gonna moan about the effects of lockdown. But what I'm gonna moan about is myself and also carbohydrates. So I'm trying to actively reduce my carb intake because I am fat. Um, I got a gut on me. I'm trying to lose it, and it's because I just love bread, potatoes. I get about a relatively balanced diet i've got a sweet tooth and i like my carbs that's where i and many other people go wrong so i'm a little bit chunky as a result but i'm moaning about carbs because it's in everything i just can't get away from it and i'm just struggling to find something that will fill me up because i love pasta i love potatoes if i'm snacking i like a packet of crisps and they're i'm just trying to find alternatives and it just annoys me that the alternatives that are out there seem to be quite expensive um, and seem to taste like crap. So <laughs> if any of you got any suggestions, uh, send them my way. But I hear many people cut out carbs and they just lose weight quite quickly. So it's not really a moan. I'm just it's a moan in the it's a moan in the sense that it's just hard to do. And my discipline is crap. Um, so I'm I'm moaning about myself now because oh, I think. If you are at home, which most of us are, and there's not a lot to do, then I find that I'm just snacking, and it's it's something it's real hard discipline to uh, it's well it's hard to discipline yourself even to just maybe not pick up a a loaf of bread or a, a sliced um, bread, and but better off to pick up some fruit. But the fruit, even if you buy it fresh, it's just it goes crap in like a day or two. The same with the salad, and and that's just that's just natural things that I've grown from on plants or underground. So it's not it's not worth moaning about because it is what it is. It's natural, but it is a pain in the ass that the, the good stuff you need to eat it pretty quick. I got a secondary moan in between recording this. I've asked the better half what else can I moan about, and she said, "Why don't you?" moan about the dishwasher repair man who came around the other day he was very good he fixed it pretty quickly was, we've been without a dishwasher for about six months um we've been washing by hand for the first time in years and we thought yeah we, we can work with this but it becomes tiring i actually noticed my wrists getting a bit um stiff um no filthy jokes please on the back of that and i thought Do you know what it's we want everything sterilized as much as possible so I thought, no, I'm going to get a dishwasher repairman out. They said 60 quid to come out plus fat, and that's to fix it. Is there any spare parts that's added on top? There's almost always a spare part. 
within seconds he's got the he's pretty much taken the dishwasher apart and he says yeah you'll need a so-and-so um it'll only be a few quid anyway he um carries on with his work and then he says i sort of say to him can you let me know what the sort of final price is going to be and he says yeah sure and then he comes back to me and says yeah it'd be 41 pound 60 odd p like, that's not bad and i thought i'm not going to tell him that it's uh i was told 60 pound plus fat plus a replacement part i'm just going to try and wangle this so i kept quiet and um he goes all right so i've um done your invoice slip and it was 125 quid so the spare part was the 40 pound odd amount plus the vat plus the call out charge so i thought i got away with that for a minute so that is just a reality 125 quid to get a dishwasher fixed another 80 to 100 quid on top i could have just brought a brand new one but just nah it's not it probably isn't worth it despite it sounding like a good deal so yeah a bit of a weak moan this week a strange one i want to find things to moan about for the purpose of the podcast (laughs) there we go just want to give a shout out really to um aj black whose twitter handle was aj black writer um he says hi there just want to say i'm really enjoying the show and he just mentioned he's dropped me an email um which i proceed to read and some just really some really nice comments so Thank you to that gentleman, and thank you to you all for continuously downloading and listening to One Foot the podcast. Um, I feel like I'm getting into the swing of things now, talking to myself, but I, it's quite nice knowing that I've got some loyal listeners out there who continue to listen to the show week in week out. A little shout out to Owen Brenman, uh, Owen Brenman, sorry, aka our man Nick Sweeney who liked one of my tweets. Thank you very much. Still not following the podcast, though. But I'm not going to moan about that just yet. Um, but he posted a photo of um, some teddy of his. I think it's of his. He's had it for... He's put 27 and three-quarter years and still fits in the sink. So he's got this picture of this a teddy in a bucket of foamy water. And I just commented, much like the teddy Victor constructed that gave everyone nightmares, and he liked it. So thank you. That means that means the world to a one foot in the grave podcast. Um, if you could just see a way clear and follow twit- my Twitter, that would really g me up. It is a shame that Richard Wilson and Annette Crosby don't use Twitter, but not to be ageist, I've gone on about ageism in this comedy and what people make of it, but it doesn't tend to be something that people over 80 would, would like to use. There are people out there who use it who are well into their 90s, I'm sure, but um, the likelihood of Richard Wilson and um, Annette Crosby, let alone Angus Dayton and, and Janine Davitsky having Twitter. That would be nice, uh, but they don't. So really, it's just Owen Brenman. If there's any other One Foot in the Grave character that's likely to be a one-off character, because we have only really see three or four main characters, if there's anyone that's on Twitter linked with the show, uh, let me know, and I'd, I'd love to follow them. A couple of you I've spoken to who listen to my podcast, I've talked about you guys coming on the show, and I I think I've worked out how to <laughs> record audio onto the show. This, uh, this is very much an amateur setup, so I will get in touch and we'll arrange something. And anyone else listening, feel free to send a message. I'll read it out on the podcast. Uh, we can do a podcast. You can come on the show. It won't be done live, so there can be plenty of swearing and cock-ups and whatever, and I can edit it all out. Anyway... Cheers, folks. Next week, I will be recording and publishing Series 2, Episode 5, Love and Death. Hope you're all okay. Take good care of yourselves and speak to you next time. Cheers. Oh, I'm in the grave.